Action! She was one of the first women to shoot her own movie. By the time I was five, she'd made over 15 films. Grabbing the camera from the boys and shooting anything I could get my hands on. I'd win awards and give them to mum and she'd put them up on her wall. It sounds like a great mother-daughter story. But off-screen, things were a bit more complicated. Only fragments of memory remain. I moved to the US and got a big American agent, shooting non-stop. But the truth was, I was running away. I'd become a cinematographer to get closer to mum. And it wasn't working. It's so easy to blame the mother. And images can be misleading. That's the trailer for When the Camera Stopped Rolling. Hello. And welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. In this episode, I'm joined by Jane Castle, the daughter of trailblazing Australian filmmaker Lilius Fraser. Castle's new documentary, When the Camera Stopped Rolling, tells the epic tale of her mother's extraordinary life, her fascinating career and their challenging relationship. Lilius Fraser was the first Australian to study at the National Film School of France, who honed her skills on nation-building industrial documentaries of the 1960s. And in 1970, she made one of Australia's first land rights films, This Is Their Land. When the Camera Stopped Rolling is a must-see documentary, and Jane should be commended for such an honest and raw insight into her personal relationship with her mother. Jane is a multi-award-winning filmmaker and cinematographer, She's shot films and documentaries and a ton of music videos for artists like Prince, U2, Mary J. Blige, Usher and NXS. Jane's directing work includes the award-winning short Roadside Cafe and the SBS documentary 60,000 Barrels. When the Camera Stopped Rolling is Jane's first feature documentary. Jane is so open during this interview. Uh, we discuss everything from Jane's childhood being compared to her mother, her relationship with other members of her family and how they've responded to this film and how the local film community reacted to her mother's tragic death. When the camera stopped rolling, we'll open in select cinemas around the country from April 21. You can find more details at whenthecamerastoppedrolling.film. Anyway, enjoy. Jane Castle, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. I'm excited to be speaking with you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, as a keen Australian film enthusiast, I wanted to begin by thanking you for this documentary. 
um, not only for such an incredible insight into this Australian uh, filmmaking pioneer's life, but also for um, uh, sharing your own story with such candor. Um, the film is is an emotional roller coaster, and one I imagine was quite difficult to put together, considering your honesty here. Uh, I really enjoyed this immensely, so thank you again. Mm, thank you. Yeah, it was a roller coaster, but um, yeah, I think it paid off in the end. Yes, it certainly did. Um, so take us back. When did you first decide that you wanted to make a film about your mother? Well, actually, you know what? I actually didn't want to make a film about my mother in the beginning. Um, and I actually wanted to make a film about death, this kind of philosophical um, kind of spiritual investigation in, into, you know, all these things around death. But, you know, my, my very wise producer, Pat Fisk, said, why don't you just go and write? Um, and I did. And this story of mum's death. Uh, fell onto the page pretty much and then it was like a no-brainer you know I've got this trailblazing pioneer uh, filmmaker for a mother I kind of followed in her footsteps and became a cinematographer and then there's all this kind of amazing material about our lives and our family and our story and you know that's really where where the film was taking us so we just kind of followed the lead of the film and it developed over time. So probably, you know, the time we decided it was going to be about my mom and me was probably about eight years ago. Yeah, right. So uh, in the film, you speak about this uh, particular death, uh, which happened on a train line where uh, train drivers were, um, were asked to, to drive over this woman's body because they didn't want to um, uh, delay the train service. Um, and, and your mother was also hit by a train. Is that where your interest in death and wanting to explore death came from? I think so. I mean, I didn't realise it at the time. Like, duh, it's a bit of a <laughs> no-brainer. But, yeah, ab absolutely. But, you know, I've also, you know, been doing some, you know, eclectic spiritual investigations over my life. And, and I was into Buddhism for a while and quite interested in the bardo, you know, what they reckon happens between death and the next life. So, but I think really the momentum for the film must have come from my mum's, you know, it's such an un uncanny story that I found, you know, I was obsessed with this horrific newspaper article that you just talked about. And then almost the same thing happens to my mum. Yeah, it, it was pretty engrossing, actually. Uh, it's interesting to to hear you speak uh, so spiritual uh, because it, that really doesn't come through in the film. Um, uh, so, so that is an interesting in, interesting part of your life to hear about. Yeah, well, both my parents were um, devout atheists, right. and they were in reaction from you know hyper religious backgrounds themselves. Mm. Um, so yeah, I was brought up quite an atheist, but my aunt was had a very strong spiritual life. And, um, yeah, so although the film's not overtly spiritual, um, there is a little, you know, things about the synchronicity and the light and um, maybe more towards the end there's a kind of a subtle um, reflection of that angle. But, yeah, it's, it's not a film about spirituality at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the film opens with this powerful metaphorical scene of a, of a baby bird hatching from its egg. Uh, while your narration describes your mother pregnant with yourself, uh, resting her camera on her pregnant belly to capture that shot. I'm wondering how early this opening came to you. Was it late in the game during the editing of the film or, or was that particular footage something that has stuck with you for a while of, of that, uh, that baby bird being born? 
Actually, you know, you, you're quite um, canny on, in that. It actually came very late wow. in the yeah. piece. You yeah. know, often the openings of films are really hard to get and we struggled and struggled with the opening of this film. And I knew I had this fantastic footage and also the story of how mum, you know, was working on this film while she was pregnant with me mm. and resting the camera on her belly. So um, it just kind of fell into place eventually um, over, you know, after a lot of angsting about it. But, you know, where it finally fell feels really perfect for the film now. Yeah, it really does. Uh, what type of bird was that out of curiosity? Was that a freckled duck? I think it may have been actually. <laughs> like I'll have to go and check. But, um, yeah, they talk about the freckled duck and then the next shot after it, hatches from from the little shell is of two little ducks kind of paddling away I don't I don't think it's the same duck but I yes. think that's where they were nesting out um out in far western New South Wales right right uh, I noticed that the name of the production company is Freckled Duck is that where that name came from uh Pat Fisk I think figured that one out I, I think so and I yes. think she just like you know me and my mum had freckles there's so many birds in the film it, it seemed to become a theme yeah. um birds and wings and freedom and flight uh so yeah she just she um chose the name of the company and it was a good one I think oh it's absolutely perfect uh, I want to talk about this footage for a moment do you have all of your or most of your mother's work at hand or, or did you have to hunt some of it down well, a lot of it is now in the National Film and Sound Archive and really? also at the Australian Centre of the Moving Image, ACME in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so a lot of it hadn't been digitised. So it was just sitting in the archive gathering dust in, you know, in 16 mil cans. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, we decided to make this film that we were able to get access to a lot of it and get it scanned so many of the films and the still photos actually you know I'd never seen before so it was wow. this lovely exploration you know throughout the making of the film of finding these little nuggets of gold you know yeah, yeah. Uh, it's incredibly beautiful footage uh, the restoration of this film is is incredible it's so clean and vibrant um what what, what was involved in enhancing the footage well, that I put down to the genius of uh, Rowan Davis, who was the colorist and also the online editor for the film, and he he also did special effects and and titles. Yeah. And it took a long, long time. We we just put so much care into it, and luckily, you know, it was during the kind of COVID lockdown time, and so. I'd go in and we'd both have masks on and I'd be sitting up the back and it kind of gave us a bit more time because, you know, productions had pretty much ground to a halt. Yeah. And, um, you know, his expertise, you know, Rowan's, you know, got 30 or, or more years' experience in this field mm -hmm. and also, you know, he just loved the film. So, you know, some of that footage, you know, we went through and, you know, we got rid of little bits of dust and sparkle here and there. And other other part, parts of the film we decided to leave raw. Yes. You know, let's see it in its kind of scratchy, dusty state. But for some of those, those really important pivotal scenes, we really spent a lot of time cleaning them up and putting through, them through lots of processes with this hyper-expensive equipment that Rowan has. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's so beautiful. It's um, it's uh, as I said, it's so clean and vibrant. It just bursts out of the screen. 
Um, how accessible is this kind of footage? I mean, you're her daughter. Is it is it easy? Was it easy for you to access? Um, yeah, a, a lot of her films were actually for either Film Australia or for um, companies like um, mining companies or the Australian Wheat Board. So a lot of those films are accessible. In fact, a lot of the films are, are what they call orphan uh, mm -hmm. films, like the, um, the original owners don't even exist anymore. Wow. So it, it, was, it was a major uh, kind of task to track down the origins of all these films yeah. in order to be able to use them. Mm -hmm. And there, there were a whole lot of various copyright issues involved, lots of different copyright holders, so we had to get permission from all of those and uh, it was a really big job that Pat Fisk had to undertake. <laughs> I don't know if she'd do another film that's so heavy with archive again. We, we didn't realise at the beginning how much archive would, would be using. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's really interesting now and it's kind of piqued my interest a little bit. So was there, was there any particular footage or any particular film that you weren't allowed to use because of copyright? Um, I think that we were able to use everything in the end. You know, we had to, we, we've got a Prince music video. That was a nightmare. We had to track down <laughs> his estate. Yeah. You know, we're just a little documentary film. They weren't going to make a huge amount of money out of us. Yeah. Um, we've got some footage from U2, so we had to track them down in, you know, their their company down in, in Dublin. Um, and we've got this um, B-grade horror movie I shot called Leprechaun 2 and yes. we had to kind of find them in America. And, you know, some of them, you know, just charge, you know, so much because they just, you know, they're just money-making machines. <laughs> yes. but we yeah. pretty much, you know, through our tenacity and determination, we pretty much were able to use everything we wanted to, which is amazing, actually. Wow, wow. Um, it, uh, you mentioned before about, um, you know, you hadn't seen some of this footage before of, of your mum. So how often did you watch your mother's films growing up? Oh, my God, some of them I cannot get out of my head, like wow. the, especially the music, like these theme songs. And, and when we were, like, watching them again, it was just like, oh, my God, I feel like I'm six years old sitting in the living room. So a lot of them I'd seen over and over and over again um, because, you know, they would screen rushes and then they would screen, you know, rough cuts just on the projector, mm -hmm. you know, in the living room against the wall. And then they'd have, you know, they'd check the prints and show them again. <laughs> so some of them I'd seen like ad nauseum and others I hadn't seen at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so was, was that something that you were forced to do at the time to sit down and watch the films or, or was this something that you, that you just were, had an interest in, you, you wanted to support your mum? Oh, it was more like it was it was kind of a bit more random. It's just like fairly chaotic household with film crews coming and going. And you know, the, the the business was really a big part of the family. So there was always this big production kind of um machinery going on. And us kids, we just kind of got caught up in it, sometimes got involved in it, often be thrown in as extras. Um, or our friends thrown in as extras or even main parts in, in some of the movies. So it was all just kind of part of that big mix of family and filmmaking all thrown in together. Yes, wonderful. Um, uh, you're, you're a cinematographer and a filmmaker yourself. Do you remember being critical of your parents' work at the time? You, you know, were you watching it from a, a critical point of view and, and thinking about what you would do differently or how you would have shot that particular scene? No, actually, yeah. you know, 
what it's like sometimes when you have with your parents you just whatever they're doing you just think well it's normal like like <laughs> no, nothing special yeah my mum's a trailblazing pioneer no big deal yeah they made the first land rights film in Australia no big deal so I really and you know uh, watching them you know it was it was quite chaotic as I said and also there were there was always money problems so what I saw was like I never want to make films when I grow up like I know I don't want to have this mess and chaos but then you know as I when I got to film school you know going against what I had decided um, when I was 19 then of course I got a bit I got a bit snooty actually you know I just thought oh you know arty and their films are just not very arty they're very you know they're craft they're they're doing a good job but they're not like works of art so I was a bit snobby for a while and now I think I've come back around to really appreciate um what they were doing especially my mum in in a man's world back then like all that those glass ceilings she was breaking through yeah yeah um, that's so interesting what you said then about uh, being a kid and how you view your parents' work. Uh, this morning, my eight-year-old son was watching Spider-Man on TV and uh, I've sat in a room and interviewed some of those actors in that film and I tried to explain that to my son and and he didn't care at all. He was like, oh, yes. oh good, yeah. good on you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah whatever. Yeah, yeah. there's just no interest at all. Um, uh, do, you, do you feel that you learnt anything new about your mum uh, while you were looking back through this uh, old footage now? Oh, lots, actually, you know, and I interviewed, like originally we thought we would have interviews throughout the film, so I interviewed probably about, I don't know, 15, 20 people, and so I learned a lot about her life, including actually a couple of affairs that she had, which was nice, juicy information that isn't in the film. Um, So that was interesting, and it was more like also going through her letters and diaries, I just... I feel like I learned more about what made her who she was and what made her tick. And, you know, um, you know, she, she had, she had an issue with drinking at one point and then she got sober and just kind of, it was interesting to find out the roots of, of that, the, the kind of trauma that she experienced as a kid, which really helped me make sense of the decisions she made later in her life. And then, yeah, it, it comes out in the film too, more like, an artifact of that life that you see up on screen. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's interesting that you just mentioned those interviews then. So did you originally set out to, to uh, make this documentary like a talking head style documentary? Yeah, well, I did. Uh, it's funny, I had this, I've always had this kind of creative urge and like wanting to really, in fact, I really wanted to make an art film like mm personally just go around getting beautiful shots and put them all together so that was my main thing but then I thought well you know mum's the interesting character here she's a historically (laughs) important figure and I need to find out about her and yeah get people talking about her Um, but it just you know that footage just did not gel like the film just kept spitting them out those interviews um, one by one. And, you know, maybe it's it's quite a challenge to actually integrate um, interviews with historical archive footage and, and kind of con- contemporary art footage. Yes. And, yeah, it just, the film decided, no, we're not going to have these interviews. We, we gave it a good burl, yeah. uh, Ray Thomas, the editor, and I, but in the end, it's just it felt like it needed to be in its own little bubble world, like yes. this, um, yeah, enclosed space where 
I, I tell the story, but using all that research, like those interviews were so invaluable to do in, in terms of informing um, the storytelling. Yeah. So have you archived those interviews now? Are they stored away safely, you know, for future purposes if, if the occasion should arise? Yes, yes, they are. And we yeah. are thinking, you know, if, if we can get some funding, we might, um, you know, build them into a website so that they're available for people to, to if they want to do more research, they'll yes. have access to all these interviews and to learn more about her life. Brilliant. That, that's such a fantastic idea. Um, uh, while we were watching this film, uh, my wife made the comment that both yourself and your mum always seem to be working. Um, it just seemed to be go, go, go. W was there much family time? Um, so much of your relationship seemed to be built around uh, this work and film life. Were there moments where you both switched off and, and were just a, a family? Um, rarely. I'd have to say in terms of the four of us, rarely, um, like my mum, my dad, my sister and I, but there was this one thing that mum loved. I don't know if she loved it as much as or more than film. It's hard to tell, but surfing. So she was just uh, crazy for body surfing. And I think it's because her dad put her on a wave when she was young and she fell in love with the ocean. And she always used to say, oh, it's my church. Um, so she, well, she'd actually often get away without us. Like we'd wake up in the morning like, where's mum? Oh, she's off surfing. Like, damn, she left us behind again. <laughs> so she um, loved doing that. And, and then, she, you know, she would, when we were old enough, she took us with her and taught us how to body surf. So that would be a time of bonding. But that was pretty quick. And then it would be back to the cutting room, you know, like churning out the movies. And, you know, like I, I became like that as well. I, I was quite, you know, I say in the, in the film, I became a bit of a workaholic. Yeah. So, yeah, she was very driven and I was very driven too. Mm. Uh, so is uh, surfing in the beach something that you still do now? Are you, are you a bit of a beach bum at the beach all the time? I am actually. I live yeah. a couple of blocks away and um, near Maroubra Beach, yeah. so I'm like quite, quite often in the waves enjoying oh, that's it fantastic. and remembering, yeah. remembering her too. Yeah, yeah. Um, lately I feel like I've been talking a lot about intergenerational trauma on film uh, filmmakers have been exploring it, you know, in, in films forever. But I feel like there's this boom of the subject at the moment, uh, particular, particularly with Australian films. Uh, how cathartic has this experience been for you? Yeah, pretty, um, well, cathartic and not. It's, it's interesting because when, when um, you have to make a film, like, and I, I had not made a feature length film before. So I was pretty inexperienced and I had this massive amount of material that I had to try to shape into narrative form so that it would be compelling to watch. So I was quite actually focused on the structure and the narrative. And um, it's almost like I had to stand back a bit uh, from the film in order to make sense of the material, to, to make it work. Mm. And so often, sometimes I was quite detached and, and the editor of the film, Ray Thomas, he, I think, often did the feeling for me. Wow. And then, then one time kind of near the end, we had a screening of the film in a theatre and towards the end I just started crying. I'm like, oh, that's why I, why I made the film, so that I could cry. So yes. I had moments of catharsis but more like, towards the end of the film or, or wow. when I could sit back and relax and then just be affected by the film and not be like freaked out about, oh, is this scene working or is it too slow or what shots can we put in here? Yeah. 
Yeah, so it's, I mean, what was good in terms of, you know, intergenerational trauma mm. in a therapeutic sense for me was that I got to, as I say in the film, I think, put order, you know, put a frame around the chaos. And so for me, you know, my history with my family had been always been quite overwhelming and I was forced in the making of the film to make it, put it into a, a container, make it make sense find out about my parents and kind of yeah just just have it more yeah more ordered mm. and and so that I could make meaning of what before then had kind of defied meaning so it was really helpful in that sense yeah and uh, and not only are you forced to relive you know some of these traumas while making the film but but for, uh, you know for a long time after too with Q and A screenings and media interviews how do you prepare yourself for for strangers asking you such personal questions oh yeah it is quite <laughs> excruciating um i think you know the best strategy that i've found is just to come as me like mm. the, and and i can't always do that cuz sometimes i'm too nervous but if I can just be me, yeah. I've made this film, I've put it all out there, you know, yes, I can feel a bit embarrassed about it and weird, like everyone's seeing so deeply in, into my life, but there's something also quite liberating about that, that mm. you just got nothing to hide. Yeah. And so I just try to turn up as me and just answer the questions as they come and and, you know, usually they're, they're really good questions and because a lot of people seem to resonate with the film. So it's, it's, it ends up being quite lovely, actually, when people really connect and um, you find out what things they related to in the film and it really often takes me by surprise, like, oh, that shot of that gate, you know, like it was amazing and it made me think of this thing that happened with my father 20 years ago and I'm like, wow, yeah. well, I didn't expect that. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's quite lovely. Oh, wow, that, that's great to hear. You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or cinemaaustralia.com.au. Um, you look a lot like your mother. Um, I'm sure you're told that often. Uh, do you see her when you look in the mirror? And I ask that because I, I know that I look a lot like my father and it wasn't until I started seeing him when I looked in the mirror that I started to realise how similar he and I actually are as people. Um, is that a case? Is that the case with you? Well, in terms of visually, not so much. Although my uncle constantly says, "You're Lilius, you're Lilius," and it makes yeah. me feel really weird. Yeah. But um, <laughs> it's more that um, I'm noticing how similar I am in terms of temperament and yeah. personality. Which, yes. of course, I always wanted to be really different. Like, oh, don't let me be like my mother. I'm, you know. <laughs> I'm going to be better than her, you know, or at least different. Yeah. Oh, my God. And now I'm just seeing, you know, I'm seeing her tenacity. I'm seeing her kind of workaholism, her can-do attitude, her determination, and kind of this positivity um, as well that kind of sometimes surprises me. So it's more, yeah, it's more the internal stuff. I mean, people do say, oh, my God, I can't even tell you apart. Some people say about the film, I was getting confused if it was you or Lilius. And I'm yes, like, really? Yeah. So I think I'm still a bit visually resistant <laughs> to seeing the similarity, but sometimes I'm like, I let it sneak in. I go, oh, yeah, I get it. I get yes. what they're saying. Yes, yeah. Um, have members of your extended family and, and uh, your sister seen the film yet? 
Yeah, like I, I showed the film along the way to my uncles and aunt and all my cousins and um, second cousins and, you know, all the way down the line because I, I wanted to make sure, you know, that they felt okay about that. Um, I'm not sure if my sister has seen it. I think she has seen it, but um, we're taking the film up north soon, actually, where, where she lives. So that might be an opportunity for her to see it and we'll see what happens there. Yeah. So so was she supportive of, of this film being made? Oh, look, there are times when it was pretty fractious, to be honest. Um, and to me, I make sense of that by understanding that it's it's part of the intergenerational trauma that's coming out, you know, in the wash. It's, it's not easy for kids when they, you know, grow up with domestic violence and, and addiction and, you know, a few other things. Um, so, yeah, it, it has not. I have to be honest, it has not been easy between us to make the film. Um, and, you know, they, they people often say, you know, don't make a family about your film until everyone's dead. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> family members are still around. And, um, yeah, so it was fraught at times, I have to say, and, and that's it was difficult. But I am hoping that ultimately the process can be a healing process that, I mean, I know my sister will have a different perspective on our family. Um, you know, like most siblings do, they have completely, like, did you grow up in the same family as me? <laughs> um, but I, I'm hoping that it generates, you know, dialogue and, and connection over time. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, before, you know, we've been speaking about uh, uh, themes of intergenerational trauma here, and I brought that up because my last interview was with Selena Stang, uh, who directed a, a film called Mother Mountain, which is due out around the same time as this film. Um, her film is more of a narrative feature, um, but there are some comparisons with this film and that film uh, because it's mostly biographical and uh, deals with this tumultuous mother-daughter relationship. But another comparison that I made was that Selena herself also made music videos and uh, told me that at the time she felt very much... Uh, that the music video world was a man's world and that she never really felt comfortable as a woman in that industry. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your time as, uh, you know, your music video days and, and your experiences in the industry? Yeah, interesting. Um, I think that um, I had a pretty, maybe an easier ride because my sister, Claudia Castle, was a music video director. Right, right. And I worked as her cinematographer for many years. We were a team and it was kind of like, well, she's a director and often the producer and I'm the cinematographer and we were a bit, you know, we were just stronger, you know, power in numbers. Yes. And <laughs> we were able to kind of um, withstand some of the, you know, a little bit of bullying or lack of respect that comes, you know, not all the time, but from time to time. And, and it was good to work together. And, and then we had my mum, Lilius, behind the scenes, you know, advising us and, you know, we'd run to her for like, oh, what do I do about this or that? And she would give her sage advice. Um, but, she, you know, she also um, modelled for both of us this real can-do attitude and you know when when she was kind of bullied or harassed on film sets she would just kind of fob them off yeah. um, because she was just really interested in filmmaking like she was just passionate about it I don't know for some reason it didn't seem to get her down as much as it can other people and I yeah. think 
some of that um, rubbed off on me and my sister. So, yeah, we worked together for a while and then, then I went solo in the US and, and yeah, it was sometimes a struggle. Um, and But one of the things I knew was that I had to earn the respect of the crew that was working for me, you know, focus pullers and gaffers and grips. And once I'd done that, which wasn't always easy, um, usually the blokes would be on side, which was mm. lovely. And, of course, you know, there were so many female um, camera assistants too who were really supportive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how, how creatively fulfilling was it for you making music videos? Did, did you have an interest in, in music in general? Yeah, you know, this, uh, music videos were like my second film school oh, in a God. way. Yeah. Um, there's something about music i mean firstly you don't have to have like this strict narrative structure and you know actors and a script and all that and there's something about the confluence of music and image that um kind of generates this creative it's almost like a third like it creates another creative realm and so there was so much room to experiment and try things out and play with new bits of equipment and and just like, oh, look what's happening over there. Let's just run over there and grab that thing. The light's just hitting that thing. And you could do that in music videos, which there's no way you can do that on, like, narrative films, feature films. Like, it just has to be so rigid and controlled because time is money. Yeah, I, I, I kind of, I, I did. I got a lot out of shooting music videos and, you know, made some beautiful images that I'm, that I'm really proud of too. Yeah, uh, maybe it's simply because I don't watch enough of them now, but I feel like the art of music videos is, is fading a little. Um, we used to have these primetime shows in Australia, like Video Hits and Rage, dedicated to hours and hours of music videos on television. Uh, but now I feel like they're a bit of an afterthought for music artists. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, like I was so lucky, um, I think it was like the 80s and the 90s and it was this golden age of music videos where they just kind of, they used to be, you know, just people made them in their living rooms and they just used to be there to illustrate the songs and then the record companies realised that the music videos really could help sell the song and so they started to put money into it yeah. and so people were really focused on developing um, this this art form, and it was often an art form, not always. Um, yeah, and so there was this lovely kind of growthful era, and then I don't know. I think then it just became much more about image and money, and yeah. seriously, um, the realm of record companies. And I don't know. I think the, there are still really good music videos being made, but you know since digital has come along there's been this democratization of filmmaking and so now people are kind of making them amazing music videos for free but it's I think it's a bit harder to break new ground um creatively yeah. that that's my sense and that I mean the quality yeah you don't see them I mean there's this there's this music video festival called clip clip yes yes yeah. yeah great festival yeah fantastic and I've judged it a couple of times oh, and the quality of work is just off the Richter scale. I'm just like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Oh, that's more amazing. Oh, my God. And it just blows me away, yeah. the standard. But, you know, it has, you're right, it's kind of been siloed off into this little kind of niche area. When it used to be, yeah, you'd get up on Saturday morning and watch Rage be still on <laughs> or you'd come home from being out at late and Rage and 
yeah, all those music video shows. It's it's a bit sad that it's um moved on, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like clipped should be much more widespread than what it actually is. I, w- I wish that it got more recognition than it than it gets. Actually, it it, it certainly deserves that. Yeah, it's a fantastic festival and really good work in it and, and it's run really well too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, tell us about your relationship with producer Pat Fisk who uh, produced this film. Uh, Pat knew your mother quite well, I believe. Um, was there ever going to be anyone else uh, to produce this film? Well, we kind of, Pat and I just kind of fell together um, almost kind of in a quite a relaxed way because I just had this idea and I'm like, hey, Pat, do you want to have a coffee? you know, so I can talk about this idea I've got. And then suddenly, you know, we were making this movie together and it just seemed to be a really natural fit, mm. um, partly because we're quite different. Mm. And that really worked for us, I think. Like Pat is very pragmatic. She's super experienced and, you know, a talented film director in her own right. Um, and she she knew to, she had, she knew to kind of, when to when to give input and when to stand back and I think that's a really um it's a great skill to have and it shows a lot of wisdom because you know I'm I'm more like uh introverted and sensitive and you know like just had no really in the beginning I had no idea what I was doing with making (laughs) the film and I needed a lot of space and time to make it so Pat really held that space um you know, kept, kept kind of pushing me, yeah, we have to get this film done, um, but also allowed the film to evolve to become what it needed to be. And so that we, we both ended up kind of chaperoning the film into existence. But it was, yeah, you know, we talk almost every day. There's always something to talk about and we're still doing that because we're trying to get the film out. And it's yeah. just, yeah, it's been a lovely, it's turned into a lovely friendship, actually, and a kind of camaraderie because, you know, it was tough and we did, you know, we had some tough times as you do when you make a film, you know, moments of crisis and all of that and we, all, we got through it together. Oh, that, that's great to hear. Um, I get excited when I see a, a new film of Pat's because the last one I saw of hers was um, uh, Oyster in 2017. Uh, and like this film, it, it's such an incredibly well-composed documentary. Did you get the chance to see Oyster? Yeah, it's a beautiful, um, it's it's like a reflection or a contemplative, yeah, a quasi-contemplative documentary um, that just, you know, it's it's quite gentle in its yes. gaze yes. and incredibly beautiful. Mm. And it just captures that that lifestyle of, of the oyster farmer and, you know, the ups and downs and, and the impact of climate change on that industry. Um, yeah, so you look, Pat is very, Pat's very diverse. You know, mm. she can move from a film like Oyster, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is quite real, you know, it's all real footage shot, you know, today, yeah. to something like our film, yeah. which is like almost all archival and very internal, you know, yeah. one narrative monologue yeah so yeah she, she's she's got a lot of films in in her swag and and they're all quite different yes yeah um I was excited to read in the credits uh, last night not last night that uh, Tara Marisa uh, voiced your mother in the film uh, how did yeah. Tara's casting come about well it was really tricky actually to find um the right person because she had to we had to find someone a who 
could be a little bit close to mum's strange Queensland accent, kind of a bit nasally, but also um, span this time frame from when mum was young, I think the first letters are when she's in her 20s, um, through to to her diaries when she's in her 70s. So, yeah, we we tried a lot of people out and Tara just had that... um, flexibility and you know she was just able to nail it in terms of performance like the emotional aspect of the performance like in one or two takes and I think we only we could only afford her I think for an hour something like that so she came over to my place um to my study with my microphone and um we just did it quite quickly and she was so professional I think she did a really lovely job I mean her, her voice isn't really like mums but mm. I think because the performance is so strong that she gets away with it yes yeah oh wow that's fascinating I didn't realize that that uh, there was such a, a a casting process involved I thought it might have been a case of you calling up one of your mates and and she came around and did it oh no like it's it's really it's a big job um yeah. And, and the guy I got from uh, for my dad, Nick Barker-Pendry, now he was off um, one of these kind of free actor websites. So um, he, he just kind of dropped in and um, he was perfect too because he was actually English, had this English accent, and my dad had manufactured an English accent. So he turned out to be perfect too. But... Anyway, the whole thing, no, there were some easy bits, um, but finding the actors for the voices wasn't that clear cut, wasn't wasn't that simple. Wow, amazing. There you go. Um, uh, I want to ask something a a bit more serious here now. I feel like I'm jumping to a much more serious question here. Uh, But uh, how did the local film industry respond to your mother's death at the time? Uh, Do you feel like she got the farewell she deserved by the local film community? Was she honoured in a way? Um, yes, by the really like there's there were a couple of film communities that she was deeply immersed in, and one was that really old school um, Aussie documentary, kind of the Film Australia crew, people like Mick von Bornemann and Andy Fraser, who had shot for her, you know, twenty years ago, and they. They turned up to her service, but also I think the people who were most affected were the um, the women like Jenny Thornley and Martha Ansara, who Mum had met in the late seventies. That this burgeoning feminist filmmaker community, and they they kind of had heard of Mum, like oh we've heard of this woman who's made lots of films. Who is she? Oh, Lydia Fraser. Who is she? Let's get her. And they tried to get her to come and kind of mentor them but often she was too busy on location um, but but finally you know when mum actually broke up with my dad and you know the whole film business went bust mum went and got a job at the Sydney Filmmakers Co-op yeah. and so she finally got to meet these people and really forge strong friendships with them and so you know they spoke at her service and Martha Ansara wrote her obituary for the Sydney Morning Herald and um, it, it was actually lovely to see who turned out but you know the documentary um, you know, part of the Australian film industry is a little kind of subsection in itself. So it wasn't like, you know, we had all the 
the big, you know, feature film directors, um, they'd heard of Mum and, and in fact, a lot of them donated to the film, which was really lovely. But I think it was more, you know, she's being celebrated, you know, this classic story of especially women, you know, they get celebrated well after their death rather than at the time of or during their lifetimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, there's some beautiful little stories there. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Mm. And it's good to hear that uh, those kind of filmmakers donated to the making of this film as well because it's such an important, uh, well, I feel like it's such an important story to have out there. Um, I've got a a final question here for you. I usually end these podcasts by asking uh, filmmakers, you know, if they keep up to date with with local films being released. But uh, I want to, um, you know, target this one more to yourself. Uh, Your mum was a passionate Aboriginal land rights activist and, and you're a passionate environmental activist yourself. So I'm wondering if you keep up with uh, contemporary Australian documentary films. Um, recently we had Bill Code's The Lake of Scars and uh, Sally Ingleton's Wild Things. Um, do you keep up to date with with contemporary documentaries being made in Australia? Yeah, yeah, I do try to. And, and in fact, I just saw recently, I think it's called Wash My Soul oh, in yeah, the... Yeah. River yeah, in the, the river's um, flow, yes, yeah, in the river's flow, yeah, the Archie Roach, um, Ruby Hunter film, and that was phenomenal. I mean, I, I even saw it on this massively big screen, uh, in event cinemas up at Bondi Junction, and it was just stunning. Um, so yeah, I do try to keep up, um, especially with First Nations uh, filmmakers because, you know, they're, they're really, um, it's a lovely flourishing, beginning to flourish um, those filmmakers that are, you know, coming up through the ranks. So, yeah, it's so important to, um, you know, to get these documentaries out and seen and they're so good. Like the quality of Australian documentaries is just incredible. But, you know, one of the issues is that there's so much content, you know, they call it content now. It's yeah. like, oh, yeah. what a horrible word. For, <laughs> it is a horrible uh, word. It's a horrible word, but there is so much, you know, work out there, great films, great documentaries, and then you've got Netflix, you know, you've got, you know, box sets, and there's so much to watch that often um, these documentaries do kind of for, you know, they, they go under the radar a bit. And, um, yeah, anyway, I just encourage people to get out there and, and see more Aussie documentaries because there's a lot, a lot of great stuff to learn and to be inspired by. Yeah, there really, really is. Um, Jane, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Uh, I appreciate it so much, and I know that uh, our listeners will too. Uh, so thanks again and, uh, and congratulations on this film. It, it's absolutely terrific. Thanks so much. It's been great uh, chatting with you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Cinema Australia podcast. You can keep up to date with all the latest Australian film news, reviews, features and interviews at cinemaaustralia.com.au.